The Explore Oregon podcast is brought to you by the Statesman Journal, newspaper of Salem in the state capital since 1851. I'm your host, Zachar Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. In this edition, we're visiting one of Oregon's most fascinating wilderness trails, a place so beautiful the government restricts the number of people who can visit. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Last week, the U.S. Forest Service announced a big change to the way Oregonians get outdoors. Starting in 2020, people will need a special permit before hiking and camping in the Mount Jefferson, Three Sisters, and Mount Washington wilderness areas. It's a system called limited entry, and the goal is to reduce the crowds that damage sensitive alpine areas in the Cascade Mountains. But it's not the first time Oregon has tried this. In the 1990s, the Forest Service installed a limited entry system at two special places, Obsidian Trail and Pamelia Lake. In this special edition of the Explore Oregon podcast, we're going to look at how well this limited entry system worked. We're going to look at the problems these areas faced back in the 90s and how the system works now. We'll meet hikers and wilderness rangers to highlight the positive and the negative aspects of limited entry. You guys have a permit I can check real quick? Yeah. Okay, David, so this is part two of our special report. If you missed part one, you can check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, or statesmanjournal.com explore. Anyway, in part one of the podcast, we broke down this new system of limited entry that's going to have a major impact in Oregon beginning in 2020. Yeah, this is going to be a pretty big deal. It's really a big change for fans of wilderness areas in Oregon. So let's do a little refresher before we launch into the new stuff. Yeah, for sure. So in the new system, every trailhead in these three Oregon wilderness areas, Mount Jefferson, Three Sisters, Mount Washington, it's going to have a quota system in place at each trailhead that only lets in a certain amount of people. So Marion Lake Trailhead, real popular mountain lake in the Mount Jeff. In 2020, there's going to be 10 overnight group permits and 40 day use permits available. If you don't get one of those permits, you can't go in. So that's the idea of limited entry. It restricts the number of people allowed in. In part one, we interviewed one of the architects of the system, a Forest Service employee named Matt Peterson. He explained how they arrived at this specific solution. But one of the things he talked about, and one of the big reasons for expanding this system, was the success that they'd already had in two places, Obsidian Trail and Pamelia Lake. Those two places have had limited entry since the 90s. Yep, Obsidian and Pamelia laid the groundwork for this major change. So in this podcast, part two, we're going to go deep on Obsidian in particular. We're going to talk about all the things that make it cool because it really is a special place. Then we're going to look at the problems that arose and whether the practice of limiting visitors actually worked out. All right, so let's start with the location. Obsidian Trail is located just off the Mackenzie Pass Scenic Highway, so it's right between Eugene and Bend. It's within the Three Sisters Wilderness Area. Yeah, the official name of it is actually the Obsidian Limited Entry Area. And that refers primarily to an 11-mile hiking loop. To enter here, you've needed a permit since 1995. There's 30 overnight and 40 day-use permits available. They cost 6 bucks each. So what makes this area so cool, so special that a permit is required? So it just has everything that you'd look for in a great backcountry experience. 
It's tucked right between North Sister and Middle Sister, so these two 10,000-foot volcanoes. There's a mountain lake, there's wildflower meadow, lush forest, and these cool outcrops of obsidian glass. Here's some audio from a trip I took last summer with Troy Hall. She's a professor at Oregon State University who's been working and traveling at Obsidian for 35 years. All right, we're about three miles into the hike and the forest really opens up to a spectacular viewpoint. This is kind of the, the first big, nice view on this trail, huh? This is the one that grabs your attention. Yeah, you come through the forest for three miles, you get a pop-up on the lava and wham, there's the middle sister, the north sister, Obsidian Cliffs. And then you can get this expansive view off to the west. It's a, a really, yeah, it's when you start feeling like you're really getting up into the subalpine area. And the lava is interesting. I mean, because uh, you, you don't see it so much to start off with, and now it really becomes a part of the part of the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at aerial photos, it's really obvious these fingers of lava through here. What are we looking at? So we just hiked up from White Branch to the top of Obsidian Cliffs and we're on the kind of flat downside and you, you come over this little rise and you look out in front of you and it's just a, a sea of sparkling obsidian. It's The ground is just shining. It looks completely covered with um, obsidian flakes basically. This is where Native Americans would come up and they'd quarry obsidian, they'd break it down the cores to take with them. So all of this material that we're seeing on the ground is worked. Every little flake here has been touched by people hacked off an obsidian core, used as a tool, or just left as part of that quarrying process. It's, it's really a remarkable, remarkable place. Obsidian is a really special place. Um, it's got uh, beautiful scenery, the most amazing cultural resources in terms of the obsidian outcrops, um, beautiful flowers, great access to the peaks. Uh, it's just a really special place. Okay, so obsidian is a special place, but let's talk about the problem, what was happening there in the 90s. Yeah, the thing about obsidian is that, yeah, it's really beautiful, but it's also not super difficult to hike or get access to. It's right, it starts right off the highway. It's not a long drive from the Willamette Valley or Bend. And when we combine all that, the beauty and the easy access, it started to get overrun. So here's one of my favorite quotes about what the area was like in the early 90s. It's from a guy I've interviewed named Michael Donnelly. Here's how he described it. On weekends, it would look like old photos of Woodstock. Colorful tents everywhere, dogs running free, naked toddlers, <laughs> a lot of human and animal waste. Some people cut down trees for firewood and camped right on the shores of the lake. It was being trampled simply by so many humans in such a fragile area. That paints a picture, doesn't it? Yeah, the Forest Service didn't start limiting people right away. They tried a bunch of different strategies. Here's Holligan explaining what happened as they tried to stop the area from being badly damaged. The Forest Service tried a number of different kinds of initiatives. Um, there were things like setbacks, camping setbacks from trails and water so that, you know, people would not be camping on fragile riparian vegetation to be out of sight and sound of other people. They um, implemented campfire bans in certain areas. So a number of different kinds of piecemeal um, factors. But one of the real drivers of the process that led to the uh, limited entry system was just the recognition that the sheer number of people up here was was impairing opportunities for solitude. Okay, so we've talked about the reason limited entry came to this trailhead, but how has it actually worked? 
let's look at how the permit system changes the experience because it really does make a big difference for visitors. So I thought the best way to answer that question was to spend a little bit of time with a lead wilderness ranger at Obsidian. So he's the guy that makes sure you have a permit. You guys have a permit I can check real quick? Uh, my name's Dylan McCoy. I'm the lead wilderness ranger on the McKenzie River Ranger District, Willamette National Forest. And right now we're in a hemlock forest at the base of the lava flow in Obsidian Limited Entry Area. I'm curious uh, how many people that you come across in this job who are surprised or, or, or don't know? That's a good question actually. When I first started a lot of people uh, didn't know or, or said that they didn't know. And uh, since we started doing a little bit more signage and enforcement, I've gotten up to above 90% compliance okay. uh, with people having permits. So a lot of people are pretty familiarized and even ask me now, hey, do you want to see my permit when I first approach them? So it's, it seems like the information's out there. <laughs> can, I, can I get you to just say your name and where sure. you're from? Um, my name is Tracy Latois and I'm from Bend. Okay, cool. So. What did you think about the process of getting the permit for Obsidian? Was it hard? Was it pretty easy? No, it was super easy. I knew you had to have one, so just went on the website. I mean, it was easy to just Google it, find the website, and we did it. Um, the only thing was that was we tried to switch days, and you couldn't do that, so we ended up having to buy two days just to make sure we had the right the right day. And you didn't have any issues philosophically, I guess, with you know needing a permit here as opposed to other places? No, I like the idea of the permit. I think that it'll help. I mean, I think if we did it more places, it would help, like Green Lakes. Mm -hmm. So. Thanks for getting this, by the way. How was it getting it online? Easy. Easy? Well, no first time we tried, there were none available, but this time of year it was easy. Oh, okay. So I'm asking everybody kind of a survey thing, but do you know about the broader plan to implement this kind of system at, a lot, at other trailheads? Mm, no, but it totally support it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, well, first of all, the trails up here are really well maintained, and uh, there's very little, you know, litter on the side of the trail which i think is partly because of the limited access i think so i mean people who are going to get a permit are going to be more careful about so i'd say the vast majority of people we met had permits and supported this idea of the permit system but there's also this really awkward situation that arises pretty regularly out there where people don't have a permit did you come across that while you're up there yeah, actually I did. And so let me set up this scene here. I was with McCoy, who was checking permits, when a very nice gray-haired couple comes up the trail. They've got a dog. I'd almost describe him as like your, your very fit grandparents, probably kind of well-to-do, very nice, nice manners. You know, they're clearly not, you know, ne'er-do-wells like who are breaking into convenience stores on their time off. Just, just good people. But they had not gotten a permit. We thought that the permits were like the other ones in the Forest Service where you filled them out at the trailhead. We oh, okay. didn't understand that you needed that type. Oh, okay. So when you passed the sign and it said that it's required, you just kept going anyway? Workout I thought we'd go a little ways and then turn around, come back, just kind of check out the trail and, and get a permit and come back next week. Can you week. go online, up your phone, get service and get a permit? You can get a permit, yeah, on the phone. Is there any service up here? Well, you have to tell me. I don't. I don't think I get any service right here. But normally, you need to get it before you enter the area. Right. We didn't know that. You guys have any ID on you? I mean, that was a, a pretty friendly uh, encounter. Does it? Does it ever get uh, unfriendly? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely does. Uh, it hasn't ever gotten violent, yeah. but it's gotten uh, verbally abusive for sure. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, normally I give uh, tickets on the spot, but mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I judge that mm-hmm. based on how people are going to receive it and what kind of lesson folks need to learn because you're not required mm-hmm. to cite people. Um, and we really don't want to cite folks, but some folks aren't going to learn a lesson any other way. I've been amazed at how tricky people try and be about uh, getting into the area or trying to twist verbiage and stuff to make it uh, uh, meet their own agenda. And it's just, it's really quirky, but it's its also just hypocritical in a lot of ways, I find, because what we're attempting to do, what you can argue whether it's effective or not, what we're attempting to do is maintain a certain condition that people seem to desire over a long period of time and to say well i'm supposed to be the special one who who doesn't have to abide by that is strangely hypocritical because they come here to have the experience so at the end there dylan talks about people arguing whether this permit system is effective or not you visited this area and wrote about it a lot what's the sense on whether this has been a success here's what's undeniably true about obsidian first the permit system has leveled out the number of people visiting At the same time that every other outdoor destination in the state has seen a big spike, so Crater Lake, the Oregon Coast, Smith Rock, they've all skyrocketed, have way more people. Obsidian just hasn't. It stayed slightly lower than during the 1990s. That isn't true anywhere else. And beyond the number of visitors being limited, there's also compelling evidence that the limits have allowed the area to regenerate. So I followed Hall around to these different sites that she's been tracking for the last 20 to 30 years since limited entry was installed to see how they're doing. So, so what, are, what are we talking about here? We're at a campsite kind of right along the White Branch? Yeah, so we're at a place called White Branch, which is where the trail forks if you're going to hike the Obsidian Loop. And we've just come down off the lava flow. We're about three and a half miles from the trailhead. This is a spot where everybody stops. It's, you know, a really, it's the first meadow along the trail. Uh, flowers here are spectacular early. You can see all the loop in here that's all gone to seed, but this is just a gorgeous area. Um, back uh, before the camping setback was implemented in the 1990s, this was an obvious place for people to camp. It's the first spot with water coming in from the trail. You can see it's just a spectacular spot to hang out. And so um, we're looking right now at a, a site that used to be a campsite. It's right adjacent to the trail, so it's no longer legal for camping. And um, campfires have been disallowed in this area now for a couple of decades as well. And so you can see here all of this lupin, this dense vegetation cover that's in front of us, these um, huckleberries, that's all grown in in the last say 30 years, none of that was here before. And you can see also how, you know, we've got some overstory tree mortality and the wood that's falling is not getting burned in campfires. So you see a much more natural accumulation of woody debris, which creates microsites for plants. So this is a really great example. And, and we established some permanent plots so we can come back and really scientifically measure the change on these sites. So we put in permanent plots on this campsite in 1991, I think. Mm -hmm. And we were back and measured it uh, in 2014 or 15. And, you know, that's where we could document, wow, the really dramatic reduction in the impacted area and real uh, notable recovery of vegetation. So this would be one of those areas where, you know, you can point to something, you know, you took um, recreation management action and it led to a more natural looking landscape absolutely yeah more natural processes natural system recovery like do you think this is a a good model like you know in your time out here have you seen it been be successful in accomplishing the things that you want to have like a little less people a little less impact like do you think it's worked well i think it's shown signs of success 
some of those things have been, yeah, more opportunities for solitude in the area that normally would have a lot of traffic. Um, we've been seeing wildlife, I think, more often. So one of my staff has been here since the early 90s and never really saw deer up here. We were watching deer herds come through just yesterday uh, in the area. So I think wildlife, uh, that's, a, that's a biggie. And uh, less Im newly impacted ground, so I call it campsite proliferation, where there gets so much use that all the sites are filled that people have to make a new site. So yeah, it's shown signs of success. And, and with people telling us, like the folks that were just here, that uh, we, we came here because we want the experience that this guarantees. We don't want to go somewhere like Green Lakes. That's, I've been getting that a lot this summer. Yeah. It's funny how Green Lake comes up all the time. It feels like people compare these two places, Green Lakes and Obsidian, a lot. Why is that? Well, they're both in the Three Sisters Wilderness, so that's a good place to start out. But they're just, they're a great contrast because they're very similar places. So both offer tumbling waterfalls, mountain lakes, alpine vistas on what's really a moderately difficult hike that has easy access and has been popular. for So Green Lakes is just off Cascade Lakes Highway out west of Bend. This is off Mackenzie Pass Highway. So heavily trafficked areas, easy hike, and really accessible beauty. But it's a fun, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at the difference. So Obsidian goes one way by limiting the number of people allowed in. Green Lakes goes the other way and, you know, lets in everybody. And by 2016, the number of people had increased fivefold at Green Lakes. It just gets hammered. It's become this poster child where you're seeing, you know, a small city of people there every summer weekend. So at the end of the day, what's the takeaway here? It feels like all the reporting indicates that this has been a good thing, ecologically speaking. Yeah, and I mean, I would say that it's set out to accomplish this goal, which was to provide more solitude and help the area regenerate. It has accomplished that, but the question is, are we okay with the cost? You know, I met two or three groups that came to Obsidian Trailhead, had no idea about the permit system. And then they're in kind of a tough spot where they drove, you know, an hour to get there. And now what do we do now? It assumes people always do their homework. They always have internet access. They always have money for the permit and that ability to be flexible. And philosophically, it creates this highly regulated place in a wilderness area that's supposed to be a wide open landscape where you have this freedom. So there is a lot of upside, but the downside shouldn't be ignored either. Yeah, we're really taking the space that's legally designated as wild and free and setting limits, which on its face seems really antithetical to its purpose. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, on one hand, I think it's really gonna hit folks hard that are frequent visitors. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a $5 permit here and there if you're just swinging through the area, not a big deal. Yeah. But if you're a frequent visitor, say you're a Bend resident, you like heading out to Three Sisters Wilderness, you know, say two times a month, you know, that could add up over time. It's going to add up. And I mean, think about Obsidian, you know, the people I talk to, they go there for their one backpacking trip. But because of this permit system, it's just it's not a place you're going to go frequently, like multiple times in a year, even though you could. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You just you take the good with the bad. And I think that's what the Forest Service is trying to do. Um, but, you know, I don't think the, the lesson of Obsidian is necessarily that, yes, this is awesome all the time. I think it illustrates some of the problems with it, too. Sure. That's about all the time we have for in this second episode of a special report on limited entry coming to the Central Cascades wilderness areas. If you like what you heard, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Stitcher. And hit us up at statesmanjournal.com slash explore for more great outdoors stuff. Thanks for listening.